When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Law School of America. Amount in controversy, sometimes called jurisdictional amount, is a term used in civil procedure to denote the amount at stake in a lawsuit, in particular in connection with a requirement that persons seeking to bring a lawsuit in a particular court must be suing for a certain minimum amount, or below a certain maximum amount, before that court may hear the case. United States. In federal courts. Diversity jurisdiction. In United States federal courts, the term currently applies only to cases brought under diversity jurisdiction, meaning that the court is able to hear the case only because it is between citizens of different states. In such cases, the U.S. Congress has decreed in 28 U.S.C. Section 1332A that the court may hear such suits only where the matter in controversy exceeds the sum or value of $75,000. This amount represents a significant increase from earlier years. Congress first established the amount in controversy requirement when it created diversity jurisdiction in the Judiciary Act of 1789, pursuant to its powers under Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution, the amount being $500. It was raised to $2,000 in 1887, to $3,000 in 1911, to $10,000 in 1958, to $50,000 in 1988, and finally to the current $75,000 in 1996. The use of the word exceeds in section 1332 implies that the amount in controversy must be more than $75,000. A case removed from state court to federal court must be remanded back to state court if the amount in controversy is exactly $75,000. Federal Question Jurisdiction Congress did not create a consistent federal question jurisdiction, which allows federal courts to hear any case alleging a violation of the Constitution, laws, and treaties of the United States, until 1875 when Congress created the statute which is now found at 28 U.S.C. Section 1331, the District Court shall have original jurisdiction of all civil actions arising under the Constitution, laws, or treaties of the United States. At that time, such cases had the same amount of controversy requirement as the diversity cases. Congress eliminated this requirement in actions against the United States in 1976 and in all federal question cases in 1980. Aggregation of Claims where a single plaintiff has multiple unrelated claims against a single defendant, that plaintiff can aggregate those claims, that is, add the amounts together, to satisfy the amount and controversy requirement. In cases involving more than one defendant, a plaintiff may aggregate the amount claimed against multiple defendants only if the defendants are jointly liable. Middle Tennessee News Company Incorporated v. Charnel of Cincinnati, Incorporated, 2001. However, if the defendants are severely liable, the plaintiff must satisfy the amount in controversy required against each individual defendant. The 5-4 decision in Exxon Mobil Corporation v. Alipata Services Incorporated, 2005, held that a federal court has supplemental jurisdiction over claims of other plaintiffs who do not meet the jurisdictional amount for a diversity action, when at least one plaintiff in the action does satisfy the jurisdictional amount. Legal Certainty Test The standard for dismissing a complaint for lack of meeting the amount in controversy is a rather high one in federal court. In 1938, Justice Owen Roberts set forth the legal certainty test, which is still used today. It must appear to a legal certainty that the claim is really for less than the jurisdictional amount to justify dismissal. 
the inability of the plaintiff to recover an amount adequate to give the court jurisdiction does not show his bad faith or oust the jurisdiction. Nor does the fact that the complaint discloses the existence of a valid defense to the claim. But if, from the face of the pleadings, it is apparent to a legal certainty that the plaintiff cannot recover the amount claimed or if, from the proofs, the court is satisfied to a like certainty that the plaintiff never was entitled to recover that amount, and that his claim was therefore colorable for the purpose of conferring jurisdiction, the suit will be dismissed. The validity of the amount of damages claimed is considered a threshold issue of law for a judge to decide at the commencement of the case. The legal certainty test is often heavily litigated in personal injury or wrongful death cases, in the situation where they are removed by a defendant to federal court on the basis of diversity jurisdiction, and then the plaintiff moves to remand to state court. Several U.S. states prohibit plaintiffs in such cases from demanding a specific amount of money in the ad damnum section of their complaints, because of serious problems with unscrupulous attorneys gaining undue publicity by simply demanding outrageous damages numbers that they cannot possibly prove at trial. Therefore, many such complaints cannot and do not state an amount in controversy on their face, which puts defendants in the awkward position of having to argue to the federal court that plaintiffs could theoretically recover a sum in excess of $75,000, while simultaneously maintaining that plaintiffs are not entitled to anything at all. In state courts. Each state has the power to set its own amount in controversy requirements for its own courts, but every state must offer some outlet for citizens to sue for violations of their rights, even if they are seeking no money. Most states have several levels of trial courts, with different amount in controversy requirements which must be met to gain access to higher levels of courts. For example, in the state of Virginia, the lowest level of court, the Virginia General District Court has exclusive jurisdiction to hear cases where the amount in controversy is $4,500 or less, and shares authority with the Virginia Circuit Court to try cases involving sums above $4,500 and up to $25,000. The Virginia Circuit Court, in turn, has exclusive jurisdiction where the amount in controversy is greater than $25,000. A few states like California have decided that it is more efficient to unify all trial courts so that judges and support staff can be more easily reassigned where needed. However, in California, nearly all lawsuits involving an amount in controversy up to $25,000 are classified as limited civil cases, which are subject to special simplified procedural rules intended to hold down litigation costs. References Supplemental jurisdiction is the authority of United States federal courts to hear additional claims substantially related to the original claim even though the court would lack the subject matter jurisdiction to hear the additional claims independently. 28 U.S.C. Section 1367 is a codification of the Supreme Court's rulings on ancillary jurisdiction, Owen Equipment and Erection Company v. Kroger, 1978, and Pendant Jurisdiction. United Mine Workers of America v. Gibbs 1966, and a superseding of the court's treatment of pendant party jurisdiction, Finley v. United States, 1989. Historically there was a distinction between pendant jurisdiction and ancillary jurisdiction. But, under the ruling in Exxon, that distinction is no longer meaningful. Supplemental jurisdiction refers to the various ways a federal court may hear either, state law claims, claims from parties who lack the amount and controversy requirement of diversity jurisdiction when defendants are joined in claims, or when multiple plaintiffs are joined in claims, like in class action suits. Definition. By default, courts have supplemental jurisdiction over all other claims that are so related, that they form part of the same case or controversy. The true test being that the new claim arises from the same set of operative facts. This means a federal court hearing a federal claim can also hear substantially related state law claims, thereby encouraging efficiency by only having one trial at the federal level rather than one trial in federal court and another in state court. However, 
if the case is brought as a diversity action, for example, the basis for federal jurisdiction is that each defendant comes from a state different from each plaintiff, there generally is no supplemental jurisdiction if such claims would destroy complete diversity. See Exxon Mobil Corporation v. Alipata Services Incorporated courts are also free to decline to exercise supplemental jurisdiction in specified or exceptional circumstances, Section 1367c. Pendant Jurisdiction Pendant jurisdiction is the authority of a United States federal court to hear a closely related state law claim against a party already facing a federal claim, described by the Supreme Court as jurisdiction over non-federal claims between parties litigating other matters properly before the court. Such jurisdiction is granted to encourage both economy and litigation, and fairness by eliminating the need for a separate federal and state trial hearing essentially the same facts yet potentially reaching opposite conclusions. Pendant jurisdiction refers to the court's authority to adjudicate claims it could not otherwise hear. The related concept of pendant party jurisdiction by contrast is the court's authority to adjudicate claims against a party not otherwise under the court's jurisdiction because the claim arises from the same nucleus of facts as another claim properly before the court. The leading case on pendant jurisdiction is United Mine Workers of America v. Gibbs, 1966. Gibbs has been read to require that, 1, there must be a federal claim, whether from the Constitution, federal statute, or treaty, and, 2, the non-federal claim arises from a common nucleus of operative facts such that a plaintiff would ordinarily be expected to try them in one judicial proceeding. The holding in Gibbs has been essentially codified by Congress along with ancillary jurisdiction in 28 U.S.C. Section 1367, its Supplemental Jurisdiction Statute. However, subsection Section 1367c, 3, expressly authorizes the district court to dismiss a supplemental claim when the district court has dismissed all claims over which it has original jurisdiction. Ancillary Jurisdiction Ancillary jurisdiction is a form of supplemental jurisdiction that allows a United States federal court to hear non-federal claims sufficiently logically dependent on a federal anchor claim, for example, a federal claim serving as the basis for supplemental jurisdiction, despite that such courts would otherwise lack jurisdiction over such claims. Ancillary jurisdiction differs from pendant jurisdiction in that pendant jurisdiction requires the federal and non-federal claims to arise from a common nucleus of operative fact, per United Mine Workers of America v. Gibbs, not to be logically interdependent. Like pending jurisdiction, a federal court can exercise ancillary jurisdiction if the anchor claim has original federal jurisdiction either through federal question jurisdiction or diversity jurisdiction. Areas where ancillary jurisdiction can be asserted include counterclaims, cross-claims, Federal Rules of Civil Procedure 13, Impleter, Federal Rules of Civil Procedure 14, Interpleter, Federal Rules of Civil Procedure 22, and Interventions, Federal Rules of Civil Procedure 24. Impleter claims are a paradigmatic example of ancillary jurisdiction, given the tendency of such claims to arise under state contract law, but be entirely dependent on the original claim. Moore v. New York Cotton Exchange and Owen Equipment and Erection Company v. Kroger are seminal cases relating to ancillary jurisdiction. Ancillary jurisdiction has been replaced entirely by supplemental jurisdiction, per 28 U.S.C. Section 1367b, part of the U.S. Supplemental Jurisdiction Statute. Removal Jurisdiction In the United States, removal jurisdiction allows a defendant to move a civil action filed in a state court to the United States District Court in the federal judicial district in which the state court is located. A federal statute governs removal. Generally, removal jurisdiction exists only if, at the time the plaintiff filed the action in state court, the federal court had a basis for exercising subject matter jurisdiction over the action, such as diversity of citizenship of the parties or where plaintiff's action involves a claim under federal law. 
if removal is based solely on diversity of citizenship, removal jurisdiction does not exist if any properly joined and served defendant is a citizen of the state in which the action is pending. Where removal jurisdiction exists, the defendant may remove the action to federal court by filing a notice of removal in the federal district court within 30 days after receiving the complaint. The defendant must file a copy of the notice of removal in the state court and must notify all other parties of the removal. In a case with more than one named defendant, normally all defendants who have been served with legal process must join in the notice of removal. If the party contends that removal was improper, based on any ground other than that the federal district court lacks subject matter jurisdiction, the party may move the district court to remand the case to state court within 30 days after the defendant filed the notice of removal. The district court will grant the motion if it finds that removal was improper. If the district court determines that it lacks subject matter jurisdiction at any time before entry of final judgment, the district court must remand the action to the state court. The Class Action Fairness Act of 2005 creates a separate basis for defendants to remove specified class actions filed in a state court to a federal district court. History The Judiciary Act of 1789 initially provided for removal jurisdiction. The Jurisdiction and Removal Act of 1875 explicitly granted federal courts jurisdiction over questions arising under federal law. The Judiciary Act of 1887 limited removal to defendants and established the well-pleaded complaint requirement for removal. Removal and complete diversity. When there are multiple defendants in a case, if even just one is a citizen of the state where the lawsuit was filed, a plaintiff can successfully object to removal if the only basis for federal jurisdiction is based on diversity of citizenship. The reason for the rule is that diversity jurisdiction was created by the founding fathers of the United States and the Constitution to shield defendants from possible discrimination in a foreign forum, for example, a state not their home state. When an in-state defendant is being sued in a state court, it is expected that he will not be subject to unfair prejudice. With the exception of class actions under CAFA, every defendant must agree to remove, otherwise, the plaintiff or non-removing defendants can request remand for failure to satisfy the rule of unanimity. Notably, there is a circuit split, and several intra-circuit splits, over whether every defendant named in the complaint must join in the removal notice, or whether the rule of unanimity applies only to those defendants who have been properly served as of the date of removal. The reason this is important is that sometimes a plaintiff may not be able to, or may deliberately choose not to, formally serve all defendants on the same day, or some defendants may become aware of the existence of the complaint before it is formally served, for example, if other already served defendants send them a courtesy copy. In courts that adhere to the latter rule, removal jurisdiction may be proper as long as defendants can show that all defendants who were properly served by the date of removal joined in the removal notice, even though not all named defendants joined in the notice. A plaintiff may never remove its own case, even if the defendant files counterclaims alleging violations of federal law by the plaintiff. A plaintiff must seek a dismissal without prejudice and refile in federal court. There exists a small set of cases, for example, workers' compensation actions and actions under the Federal Employers' Liability Act, that are barred from removal under all circumstances. Removal of criminal cases. A statute dating back to 1815, the latest analogue of which is codified at 28 U.S.C. Section 1442, allows removal of state criminal cases where the defendant is a federal officer who alleges that the act was committed in carrying out his federal duties. Under this, a number of state criminal cases have been removed to federal court and they're summarily dismissed, thus preventing trial on the merits of whether the officer or agent was in fact carrying out his official duties, or acting outside of them. A famous example of such a removal was the case of Idaho v. Lon Horiuchi, alleged to have committed manslaughter of Vicki Weaver in the Ruby Ridge encounter. Removal of cases involving federal agencies or federal officers. 
removal jurisdiction in cases involving federal agencies or officers who are named as defendants in civil suits or criminally prosecuted is also governed by 28 U.S.C. Section 1442, known as the Federal Officer Removal Statute, as opposed to removal under 28 U.S.C. Section 1446. The primary difference between the two statutes is that in the wording of Section 1442, the law provides that in the case of federal agencies or officers, the federal district court need not otherwise have subject matter jurisdiction over the type of case presented so long as the federal officer was acting under color of office in a civil matter, or in a criminal matter, was acting under authority granted by Congress for apprehension of criminals or collection of monies. Under Section 1446, on the other hand, there must be federal subject matter jurisdiction to justify removal. The Supreme Court case BPPLC v. Mayor and City Council of Baltimore, 2021, is expected to resolve a circuit split on how appellate sources may review challenges to federal officer removal orders. Timeliness of removal. When defendants want to remove, they ordinarily must do so within 30 days of receiving the complaint, through service or otherwise, under 28 U.S.C. Section 1446b. An exception applies if diversity jurisdiction, and thus removal jurisdiction, is lacking at the time of the initial pleading in state court, but becomes available within a year after initiation of the suit. In such cases, defendants may remove under 28 U.S.C. Section 1446b, second paragraph. For example, a federal court would not initially have removal jurisdiction over claims under state law brought by a Texas citizen against another Texas citizen and a New York citizen. However, should the Texas defendant be dropped from the claim, the New York citizen can remove if one year has not passed since the initiation of the suit. Some courts permit equitable tolling of the one-year limitation of Section 1446b if the original complaint was an attempt in bad faith to evade federal jurisdiction. Defendants may remove state law claims for which a federal court has only supplemental jurisdiction, if they share a common nucleus of operative fact with claims based on federal law. The federal court has the discretion to accept the case as a whole or remand the issues of state law, however the court must apply state substantive law to state law claims, as opposed to federal law a practice which is in line to actions brought under 42 U.S.C. 1983. Other issues. State courts do not adjudicate whether an action could be properly removed. As soon as a defendant completes the removal process by filing a notice of removal in the state court, jurisdiction is transferred automatically and immediately by operation of law from the state court to the federal court. Any objection to removal must be presented to the federal court by way of a timely filed motion. Apart from motions brought by the parties, many federal district courts screen notices of removal for facially obvious defects and when they catch one will issue a sua sponte order to show cause directed to the moving defendant. If a federal court finds that the notice of removal was in fact effective, or that the federal court does not have jurisdiction, the case is remanded to the state court. A defendant used to have to formally petition the federal court for the right to remove, and jurisdiction was not transferred until the federal court entered a formal order to that effect. The petition procedure was abolished around 1980 by Congress and replaced with the simple filing of notice removal procedure, although federal courts still see the occasional petition for removal or a motion for remand due to the lack of such a petition. There is no reverse removal. That is, if a case originates in a federal court, there is no ability for a defendant to remove a case from federal court into state court. If the federal court lacks jurisdiction, the case is dismissed. Only cases that originate in a state court and are improperly removed to a federal court may be sent back to the state court where they started. A defendant can waive the right to remove by contract, although courts take different positions about what language is necessary to create a waiver. Remand orders are not generally appealable, 
but may be appealed in the case of removals brought under the Class Action Fairness Act of 2005 or where the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation appeals a remand order under 12 U.S.C. Section 1819b, 2c. An alleged waiver of removal rights is also appealable, since the issue is not jurisdiction but the legal effect of the defendant's actions and agreements. Class Action Fairness Act of 2005. The U.S. Class Action Fairness Act of 2005, 28 U.S.C. Sections 1332d. 1453, 1711 15, expanded federal subject matter jurisdiction over many large class action lawsuits and mass actions in the United States. The bill was the first major piece of legislation of the second term of the Bush administration. Business groups and tort reform supporters had lobbied for the legislation, arguing that it was needed to prevent class action abuse. President George W. Bush had vowed to support this legislation. The Act permits federal courts to preside over certain class actions in diversity jurisdiction where the aggregate amount in controversy exceeds $5 million, where the class comprises at least 100 plaintiffs, and where there is at least minimal diversity between the parties, for example, at least one plaintiff class member is diverse from at least one defendant. The court, however, may decline jurisdiction under certain circumstances and is required to decline jurisdiction in others. The Act also directs the courts to give greater scrutiny to class action settlements, especially those involving corporations. Support. The Act accomplished two key goals of tort reform advocates. 1. Reduce forum shopping by plaintiffs in friendly state courts by extending federal diversity jurisdiction to class actions where there is not complete diversity, thereby giving federal subject matter jurisdiction over a broader set of class actions. Proponents argued that magnet jurisdictions such as Madison County, Illinois were rife with abuse of class action procedure. 2. Requires greater federal scrutiny procedures for the review of class action settlements and changes the rules for evaluating coupon settlements, often reducing attorneys' fees that are deemed excessive relative to the benefits actually afforded class members. For example, in an infamous Alabama class action involving Bank of Boston, attorneys' fees exceeded the relief to class members, and class members lost money paying attorneys for the victory. The Act passed the Senate 72 to 26, with all 53 Republicans voting in favor, and the Act passed the House 279 to 149, with the support of 50 Democrats and all but one Republican. President George W. Bush signed the Act into law on February 18, 2005. Critics Critics charged that the legislation would deprive Americans of legal recourse when they were wronged by powerful corporations. Congressman Ed Markey, Democrat Massachusetts, called the bill the final payback to the tobacco industry, to the asbestos industry, to the oil industry, to the chemical industry at the expense of ordinary families who need to be able to go to court to protect their loved ones when their health has been compromised. Critics charge that this bill makes it far more difficult to bring class action suits, and may prolong such litigation, clogging federal court dockets. The Act also gives the federal government some ability to control, through judicial appointments, outcomes that were previously under state control. Critics argue that the expansion of federal jurisdiction comes at the expense of states' rights and federalism, something Republicans have historically protested. However, proponents respond that the bill is consistent with the Founders' original intent for the role of federal courts and diversity jurisdiction expressed by Alexander Hamilton in Federalist No. 80. Impact A study by researchers at the Federal Judicial Center found that CAFA was followed by an increase in the number of class actions filed in or removed to the federal courts based on diversity jurisdiction. This finding is consistent with congressional intent in enacting CAFA. The observed increase was due primarily to increases in consumer class actions. Somewhat surprisingly, the FJC study found much of the increase in diversity class actions was driven by an increase in original filings in federal courts. 
this finding suggests plaintiffs' attorneys are choosing the federal forum, post-CAFA, rather than defendants' counsel through removal, contrary to expectations. The Law School of America The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America